welcome. This is Raventail. Room 307, written by Jerry Underhill, narrated by Jerry Underhill. Uh. He wailed again, the sound sliding under the door to reconstitute in the air over Franklin's bed. He hadn't stopped in two hours. Franklin turned to the call button on the remote lying at his side, but he didn't reach for it. What would he say? Shut him up. Each wail vibrated up his skin, raising the hairs on Franklin's arms. Why didn't the nurses do something? But he knew why. These weren't yells for anything specific. There wasn't a need they could answer, or relief to bring. No, these were the sounds of a person's life force seeping out of its meat filters. Plaintive, wet, and guttural beyond the governor of a brain. Much like a baby, a hideous baby, aware of its suffering, but without the faculties to understand, the weight of a lifetime of memories coiled tightly around its consciousness, dragging it to hell. All he could imagine was a wrinkled old husk slapping its hands on the bed and wailing in helpless fury. If you were lucky, your body would only be a prison twice in your life. But the part that came at the end was the one you'd spent decades anticipating. Getting past your invincible 20s and 30s to start feeling the micro-fractures of mortality aching up and down your skeleton. And then you became the man in 307, stuck in a place like this. Kept alive by science but stripped of all culture, all humanity. This building was the height of human achievement, Franklin thought, measured by the ability to sustain life. But what he heard was a man being stripped of the illusion that he was more than a tightly packed shell of wires and globby tissue, just like any other machine when all was done. <coughs> 307 wailed again, his voice rising in pitch as it reached the limits of his breath. But he kept hissing, like the terror of all his days were hovering above his bed and there was nothing else he could do. A knock came suddenly at the door, it swept open to pour a short, frizzy-haired nurse into the room. The wailing from room 307 sailed in with her to ricochet from wall to wall, unencumbered until the door crept mercilessly closed behind her. Can't you do anything for him? He thought that was the nicer way to put it, not, can't you do anything about him? For him. It was nicer. Her lips tightened to a thin line. She offered a small, polite smile. But the smile reached her eyes and twinkled there with a gentle fire. I'm hoping he's just upset because of the constant power outages. He's been trying to watch TV. She glanced at the TV in his room, where a baseball game from the night before was replaying. A pitcher, 
number 62, Lastero or something. It had been a decade since Franklin knew the names of baseball players. Was throwing a 1-0 pitch to a guy named Harper. A high fastball that was fouled off over the umpire's head. The umpire handed a ball to the catcher, who threw to the mound. Lestero caught it, shuffled behind the rubber, then stepped forward and dug his cleat into the clay. Franklin looked back to the nurse. She wasn't more than 40 years old, her auburn hair graying at the ends of a few strands that had shaken loose from the neat bun she'd set atop her head. And she was pretty, with high cheekbones and a lightly freckled nose. My name is Tamara, she said, looking up from the computer she'd wheeled into the room. Her motions were clipped, efficient, as she reviewed what the night nurses had registered. She strapped the blood pressure cuff around his left arm and bloated it with air, smiling encouragingly, her large hazel eyes shining earnestly. And then she returned to the computer. Just the toradol and the fedipine for now. The cardiologist should be in to see you soon. This fruit cup is small as shit, Franklin gestured with his chin to where some gelatinous eggs, an impenetrable square of cardboard turkey sausage, a cup of orange juice, and the shit-small fruit cup sat on the table pivoted over his stomach. He hadn't meant to be so gruff, but it was. And if she meant to do some good, as her eyes suggested, she needed to know one way or the other. I saw the card at the end of the hall. I can bring you another one, she said walking to his side to administer the toradol under the IV taped to his forearm. She looked to the whiteboard at the end of his bed. Beth is your daughter? He followed her eyes to where the night nurse had scribbled the phone number for his daughter, Beth, and nodded. I haven't called her yet. I will. The admitting nurse had insisted on it. He wasn't sure if he would. This was just an old man's chest pain. No sense waking them up. He'd call when he got home. I'm sure she'd like to know you're here. Maybe she'd want to be with you. I'll call. Okay, I'll be right back. Franklin turned and looked out his window. The sun was setting. Rays of muted light splashed over the foot of his bed, the tinting rendering it less than it should be. He felt the edges of his lips drag down. He'd had chest pain in the middle of the night. That's all the emergency room staff had needed to hear when the ambulance had brought him in. They'd shuffled him up the hall to one of the poorly kept rooms they kept patients in until they were either discharged or a nicer room came available upstairs. <laughs> room 307 wailed again. A light knock and then the door opened, bringing the wailing back full force behind it. She walked to his tray with two fruit cups, both peaches. Apparently that's what they had today. Then placed them next to his plate, patting them conspiratorially. Do you need anything from your bag? No. Okay, Franklin. Buzz me if you need anything. She tapped at the remote where the call button sat, then smiled again and hurriedly whisked from the room. The TV screen went black as the power shut off again. The lights flickered off and on, blinking as the generator filled the void. He frowned. His big orange Samsonite suitcase stood in the corner. The nurse who'd wheeled him in, Mallory or Molly or... Mallard, something like that, had shoved it to roll to a thumping stop there. He supposed it was annoying that he'd brought it. He wasn't sure why he had. 
his paps blue ribbon duffel he'd won in some silly raffle at O'Shea's the summer prior was right at the front door. But he'd chosen the big orange Samsonite, the one with the hard shell that he'd reserved for his biggest trips, mostly because he just couldn't trust the airlines with anything softer. Some overworked baggage handler had cracked the side of the white Samsonite, big orange's predecessor, back in 06. They'd paid him full retail value when he'd called, so he couldn't complain too much. But he never thought twice about using luggage without a shell after that. He thought about the thump it made as it skidded away from her foot. Maybe it wasn't different. The power came back on. The TV lit up. Someone was stealing second. It was a close throw, but the shortstop had to jab his glove up to his ear to catch it, and the runner slid in safe around his leg. Franklin watched the runner, number seven, whoever that was, extend a hand for a timeout, then stand and swipe at the clay streak down his chest. Still, beyond a towel, two clean shirts, clean briefs, a pair of jeans, and Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, it had been a while since he'd read it. The suitcase was mostly full of air. He shook his head. Senile old man. He could have carried the damn book in under his arm. They'd stuffed him in a thin blue gown the instant he'd been wheeled up here anyway. Then they'd had to pile blankets on top of him to compensate, given how cold they kept the damn place. <laughs> the sick man in 307 wailed again. <laughs> His tone was taking on a plaintiveness that scratched at Franklin's throat. A tear unexpectedly welled in each eye. Fuck off, he growled at himself, gritting his teeth as he reached down to detach the useless IV line from the needle in his arm. He kicked the sheets and dropped his feet off the side of the bed, swiveling the table from his lap. His fruit cup crashed to the floor and tumbled to stop against the wall, ripping open and spilling peaches and peach juice all over the floor. He glanced at the TV, a two-one pitch, men on second and third. They'll walk him, he guessed then stood, slowly, letting his legs take weight just a few pounds at a time. They deserved the chance to preserve some dignity. The bed screamed at him. He forgot they'd labeled him a fall risk and turned on its sensor. He staggered to the door as quickly as he dared. He used to run track. Now he was a broken carcass, barely able to stand straight. He got to the door before any of the nurses made it to the alarm leaving behind one duet of beeps and tones to enter a hall filled with a chorus of such incessance. It was the reaper's siren, across all frequencies, here to reach all ears and drag all under. Whistles meant to find the shatter points in the thin glass panes of the human will. Death was here, in the overly cool air, and it needed feeding. Frankie fought the knot rising in his throat, the bastard had come at last. He could almost feel the sickle curled over his back, the billowy sleeve of death's coat draping over his forehead. He wondered what he had left of his willpower. It had felt so stone-certain once. Fuck off, Frank, he growled again, shoving his snow-white bangs off his forehead. It's not here for you. He moved down the hall. He could see the nurses bustling about by their computers. The wailing was stronger now. At 3.07, he slowed down to surreptitiously glance into the room as he passed. The naked body on the bed was rolled onto its side, facing away from the door. The skin was sickly white, 
as if the body couldn't carry itself into the sun anymore, and the flesh was fatty, as if such a static, torturous malaise had called for comfort foods, all of them. And why not? He'd lived that descent himself the past six months, as doctors continued piling medications atop each other, each working at some effect, or just working to counter the negative effects of another, him with nothing to do but pound shitty paps and plod through whatever value-sized bag of chips he'd opted for that week. Usually Lay's original. He was a simple man. But the meds were a delicious bit of modern science for those who it gave precious extra moments. In 307, under the man's bloated ass cheeks was a spray of shit that had apparently exploded out, flinging off the bed and sitting as puddles of some indefinable orangish-brown color. The man hadn't wailed since Franklin had stopped in the doorway, he realized. He just lay there, as if dead. But then the channel changed on the television, and Franklin felt himself pitying this man's life, begging for death, for himself, for this guy, for everybody in the damn hall. Where's his family? Franklin thought. But that wasn't fair. Where was Franklin's family? They hadn't lived in the same city in years. Most weren't even in this state, he realized. Fingers took him gently by his flabby bicep. Get your hands, he said, stopping short as his eyes fell into the wells of the little nurse's tiny hazel eyes. Was it Tamra? Tammy? He couldn't remember. But the bite in his voice was stolen away by her tender, tear-glistened stare. This close, he noticed cute little wrinkles at the edges of her eyes, as if she squinted a lot, or laughed, or held back floods by furrowing her brow and lifting her cheeks as dams against the tide. It must be necessary, working in a place like this. For now, she just smiled softly, probably as much as she could at the moment, but he was happy for it. He suddenly felt bad for not eating the extra fruit cups she'd brought, and worse, for smacking them to the floor where they'd sloppily splattered. She had enough slop to clean up right now. He smiled apologetically. He knew he'd had a sweet smile once. He'd been told that. And it was the least he could do for her. How long had she worked here? How many patients had she stood by as they became corpses? to then still have something in her for the next dying mass of cells. He felt love for her, unexpected and deep. She pulled him away from the door, lightly, turning her face to look pointedly at a woman and small boy walking swiftly up the hall. Then she looked into room 307 and called for another nurse, peering meaningfully into Franklin's eyes then and turning to close the door to stop the mother and child from seeing in. The other nurse rushed up and moved into the room at her nod, swinging the door shut behind him but not quite closing it. Tamara let the mother and child walk on, smiling politely, the boy's cleats clacking noisily. Franklin knew they were headed up the hall to whoever was in 312. They'd been here at least as long as he'd been. Without another word, Franklin turned for his room, not quite able to rid his mind of the wailing man's milky white transparent skin, with its blue and purple railroad network of veins sprawling to towns hidden beneath the folds. He hobbled to the bed, 
his knees a little more achy than before. His legs a little heavier. He'd overdone it. It hadn't taken much, but that's where he was now in life. It took him more effort than he'd expected to twist his body back into place and press the button to incline the headrest and let his body fall back atop the pile of pillows he'd collected from the night nurse. On the TV, the bases were loaded for a 2-2 pitch to Williams, a pinch hitter. He saw the man's meager stats flash on the screen, barely a 200 hitter. They pulled the pitcher after only five innings then. He didn't really care. There was a time when he would have. There was a time when he really, really would have. Pitchers in his day demanded to stay in for seven, at the very least, and they'd be damned if some manager tried to waddle out to yank him. Williams, in his shaggy beard, fanned a soft, spinning grounder into a double plate, ending the inning. The screen cut to the image of a muddy Ford truck bounding along a treacherous forest floor. Franklin's eyes fell on the whiteboard, feet from the end of his bed. For a moment, he couldn't pull his eyes from it. The marker had given out as the morning nurse had written her name. The last two letters were only half clear. He'd wondered then how long a dry erase marker could be expected to live if all went right. If nobody left the cap off. If the tip wasn't pressed too hard. If it had lain prone instead of upside down. Three weeks. Four weeks. Teachers had used chalk when he was a kid. But even if they had moved on to markers he doubt he would have cared to notice how long they lasted. This was the kind of thing you only thought about when you were exceedingly bored, in a particularly good mood, or lying on your deathbed. But he was none of those things now, he assured himself, though his chest had started to throb again. It was time for that damn shot of Toradol to kick in. They hadn't decided whether it was some musculoskeletal inflammation or some sneaky cardiac event that was escaping their measurements. Either way, he was not on his deathbed, he reminded himself again. The pain spiked then. He grit his teeth and hissed, but he didn't press the call button. Through his door, he could still hear the nurses working in room 307. He wondered how many dry erase markers were manufactured with imperfections. They didn't seem too complicated. Plastic, some sort of felt, colored ink. But even the most up-to-date factories with top-of-the-line machinery made mistakes. So maybe some dry erase markers would only ever last a week or two. And maybe some never worked. He sighed. The factory workers probably had no idea when a marker was imperfect inside. The imperfection would just crawl up over time until it was suddenly there for everybody to deal with. A sweet lullaby played from the speaker overhead, cutting into his thoughts. The ER nurse from the night before, Mallardy, he decided, told him they did that when a baby was born in the hospital. He'd played nine times so far that day, and he couldn't decide if it was a nice touch or not. He supposed it was, if only because it balanced the miserable wails. It was hard for Franklin to imagine himself then, but he tried, as a little thing being built in his mom's belly, bless her soul. Somewhere in all that cooking, he'd been given a bad ticker, but it hadn't shown itself at first. He'd worked in Ford's Atlanta plant in the 70s, 
and sometimes he'd wondered what kind of breakdowns occurred a decade later when a cut wasn't perfect, when a bolt was a little looser than it should have been, when something snuck past the double checks to be just a little less than perfect. And maybe over time, that meant a part heated up in a way it shouldn't have, or created too much friction or slid or whatever the case was, and maybe that's all that happened to his heart. But Franklin had lived a long life before the imperfection made itself known. <laughs> the man in 307 wailed again, louder than before, more bold, less tempered by whatever illness was plaguing his body. It crashed into a rattling groan as it reached its peak. A lance of pain shot through Frank's shoulder, riding down his left arm. The power flickered off suddenly, generator kicking back on to power the lights. He lay for a moment, holding his arm. Suddenly the game came back on, power restored, and the score transposed on the screen over a vista shot of a sunny diamond and sprawling green outfield. The man in 307 groaned, the rattle slowing to a crawl. The sound twisted Frank's stomach, filling him with a sadness he had no shield for. He glanced hopefully to the TV for a distraction. Some guy named Perez had come in in relief and was throwing his last warm-up pitches. The sun glistened off his starch-white jersey as if it was emblazoned with diamonds. The TV suddenly turned off again, the lights overhead flickering. He didn't want to be here anymore. He knew that nice nurse would be by the man in 307's side, pouring whatever she had to give into his eyes and ears. But what could even this place do for a machine at the end of its life when it had nowhere to place its hope? We should die in churches, Frank thought. The groan stopped. A long tone filled the silence, audible just beneath the sound of his labored breaths. He needed to leave. Frank grabbed at the handrails and pulled himself up. From the corner of the room, his suitcase's hard shell thumped loudly against the wall, denting in the center, long cracks spiderwebbing to either side. We should die in churches. He was at the doorway then, looking down the hall toward 307. The nurses were still in there. We should die in churches. He hurried toward the stairwell to his right opened it enough for his body, and carefully, soundlessly closed it. He needed to leave. The pain in his arm was still there. His chest was still throbbing. His breath was short, but he needed to leave. We should die in churches, he thought insistently. It had a life of its own now, and had taken over his body. He was down the stairs and out into the main corridor leading from the emergency room to the general hospital entrance in a blink. The security guard at the door was moving away from him, rushing to the cafeteria. Franklin smiled at his luck. The doors parted as he approached. He turned right. The sun was falling into the needly canopy of the tall pines ahead. A newly constructed shopping plaza was on the other side of a shallow stretch of preservation space that developers had set aside. He rushed to it, peeking left, right, and back as he did. Nobody was coming for him. Nobody saw him. We should die in churches, the thought reminded him. The smell of pine resin swept into his face as his bare feet crunched over needle-strown dirt, some sticking to his socks. He pushed through low, dense saw palmettos. They cut at his skin, but it was only something to observe, not feel. His breath was shorter, nearly at an end. He was thirty yards in now. 
He fell to the ground. He couldn't even see the hospital anymore. He hadn't heard anything through the crashing sound of his path through the saw palmettos, but now it was still and quiet, and the bugs resumed their songs. A squirrel scratched his way hurriedly across a branch high above his head. He couldn't even hear the road. Golden rays lit the scales of red-tinted pines far above. He pressed his hands against the nearest, fingering at the rough texture, listening to the soft, scraping sounds his finger made as it dropped into one of the valleys between raised scales. A string of ants were there, climbing down in tight procession. He pulled his finger back. The looping chirps of high-pitched crickets came louder now that he'd paused. A flying insect, thin and fast, landed tentatively on the needles of a lower branch just a foot from his head before taking off and repeating, testing him, maybe. Not a fly, not a wasp, not a dragonfly. Just one of a million things he'd never had the name for. He noticed a brown lizard hanging upside down on a trunk to his left, its steeply arrowed head bobbing in lizard-brained rhythm. Some territorial thing, he thought. And then he thought that maybe he was a lizard in the past life, and this thing's lizard brain somehow knew that. He found that he didn't care, which was a small surprise to discover, but... He didn't care much about not caring, either. If that were true, maybe he'd be a lizard again, the thought occurred. Maybe even right here. But that didn't matter. In whatever forever place a soul lived, he knew. He'd always be Franklin, Beth's dad, Jake's grandpa. He watched it scurry down the tree and then dart across open ground to the next, imagining himself doing that. It would be nice to run again. What was it he'd heard once? Reincarnation isn't the light turning off, it's the channel changing. He didn't know about that. What happened to his body when he went was something the big guy worked out. He didn't want to think what happened to his energy when he went because it sounded so... Well, it didn't sound like Franklin. But it's what he meant in his head. He struggled to pull in a steadying breath. It didn't quite come. He felt faint, so he let himself fall to his hands. There was a thick cluster of saw palmetto feet away. He crawled into its bosom, curling up atop its nest of roots and trunks. The wind tickled at the fronds, whispering through the needles farther overhead. Churches, he thought. It was a gasp of a thought. It echoed in his mind. A warmth entered his toes then, working its way up his shins and into his thighs, snuggling into his side. Jake. A smile exploded over his face. He thought it might look hideous to an onlooker, but his grandson only giggled and pushed his forehead into Frank's ribs. A hand was there suddenly, resting warmly on his shoulder. Beth. It was his Beth, laying on the other side. I didn't call, he croaked. He wanted to apologize. He should have called. I'm so sorry. She smiled. He felt her hand run through his hair. How did you find... She shook her head. His eyes closed as the wave of warm contentment climbed over his head. 
He wasn't sure he was taking in breaths anymore. He rolled his body into Jake and Beth, pulling his legs up and stuffing his hands in the warm embrace of his own armpits. He knew he'd stopped feeling the ground beneath him. There was only Jake and Beth and warmth. In room 309, the kind nurse entered to check on Frank. She'd been touched by his soft smile. After 307, she needed another. She was thrilled to be able to bring him the news that the cardiologist had seen his scans. She'd taken a look from her home office and he was free to go, so long as he promised to make an appointment to visit the cardiologist's office as soon as possible. Linda, his case manager, would be up soon. She smiled as she inched the door open and found him asleep. He'd drifted off without pulling the blankets up, so she quietly crept in. She'd become a master of the silent creep. It was an occupational necessity. Not all of the nurses cared, she knew, but it was such a simple gesture of compassion to let the sick sleep. The smile slipped as she reached for the blankets. Franklin's chest wasn't moving. Her hand went to her mouth. She stared at his forever smile for long seconds, finally pressing the call button and reaching for his blankets. Franklin's cell phone rang on the table next to his bed then. She normally didn't look, but her eyes swept toward it, almost of their own accord. It said Beth. Howdy, howdy. Welcome. Uh, first off, I'd like to once again thank our sponsor. Uh, this show is brought to you by Dusty Saddle Publishing. Currently, they have uh, two hits in the top ten by C. Wayne Winkle, which I think is a really cool name, uh, but that's an aside. Uh, his Clint Early series, uh, Long Riding Man Shootout in New Mexico, and a book called Nevada Ambush. Uh, like I said, both of which in the top 10, and um, and this episode is brought uh, to you by them specifically, as well as Michael Cole's uh, new release, Meat Eaters. Check those out on Dusty Saddle Publishing's website, dspublishingnetwork.com, or on the social media pages for Dusty Saddle Publishing um, and Raventail. Again, my name is Jerry Underhill, and you can find my books uh, on Amazon if you're interested. Uh, today I'm fortunate enough to have my friend, Dr. Apollo, willing to speak with me and answer some questions. Uh, first of which, and thank you for joining me, I know you don't have a lot of time, is uh, do you remember your first day working with cadavers? Do you remember what you thought? I don't... Yeah, I do remember my first day. Um... Uh, the cadaver lab was kind of uh, a place that you had to earn your way into. You didn't get to go in there the first day of school, and you had to wait a while. So it was kind of kind of anticipation of what it was going to be like. And, um, you know, it's not quite what you think of in a movie or, or something that you might see maybe on CSI where there's a body... 
and it looks, uh, and, and this might sound mean, but it, it looks like a, a normal human who's died but's been preserved or something like that, or is freshly passed, just, you know, is cold and pale. Um, in many ways, um, these people, uh, these folks have been... They have gone through preservative phases as well as um, they, they don't look quite human uh, in the sense of what you would think. Um, I remember thinking, holy, holy moly. Um, and uh, it kind of went in a stepwise process in the sense of... We, uh, there's a group of six of us and we take, we split up into threes and threes and, uh, we would take turns leading the, uh, dissection of certain anatomical stuff and, and none of it really affected me until we got to, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was the human part of it. It kind of hit in is when we got to, you, you, you. Even though the person is passed, you treat them with a lot of respect. And even though that, the things I mentioned where they don't really look how you'd think, and they kind of got that weird coloring, and and usually they're much older, as you know, kind of the odd coloring from the, um, the chemical process that you would see in like a frog or a cat cadaver um, from you know high school and college. It, it looks like that, but um, anyway. The, the, the hard part was when we would keep the face covered. You also have to keep the bodies moist with this special type of solution. So a lot of it, just like in a surgery, you're keeping as much of it covered or at least covered with these uh, cloths that, have, that are soaked in this material so the bodies don't dry out as well so things don't grow in them, which we had happen to a couple... Um, but when we went, got to the face, that was the hardest part. Um, we got to the face, and, and we had to split the face open and in half so we could really see some of the anatomy from certain articulations and relationships of anatomical structures. That was the hard one to do. I remember thinking I did not want to do that because it was the first time we really had to look at their face, no matter how it looked. It's just kind of surreal. And then to actually have to split it um, was kind of uh, jarring. Um, but uh, and just like anything, you, you, you tend to go... You tend to go... You get used to it in almost this kind of a disturbing kind of way. Um, but like I said, it's very respect-oriented and... Um, you end up giving them because you don't get to know much about them. Um, but our anatomist, he had actually gone and found, it sounds like he was going to graveyards. Um, he meets these people long before they pass or a little while before they pass that they volunteered and were willing to sacrifice their body for the further of medicine. And subsequently, you know, that hopefully will help further generations. So, um, a lot can be said for, um, that honor. And then I would also take this moment to mention that at the end of, um, their cycle, which is usually a year or two, um, and a lot of work goes into preserving them. Cause I think that's the biggest problem is 
is if one it happens, but if one if you don't take care of it, uh, I remember our instructor, our professor would get very upset, and uh, these people dedicated their bodies. They didn't have a proper or they didn't have a traditional funeral and things like that. They dedicated their body, so it's a gift. So um, in that regard, uh, you need to respect them because otherwise you, you're wasted it. You wasted their sacrifice or their their gift. So anyway, at the end of the two years, they, they do a, um, a ceremony saying thank you. Um, and a lot of students go and, and attend and or uh, say something. And then family members will actually come of theirs. So, um, yeah, there's just things like that you need to recognize. As a doctor, you stand at the veil between life and death or at least as an observer. It's a precious thing. Um, I imagine it hardens you, like a chef's fingers growing resistant to heat. But when you go home, uh, do you soften? Or do you feel the need to wear that protective layer of clinical regard at all times? Um, I think... I think that 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 uh, again, I'm not a representative of all of medicine. In fact, I'm probably more at one end of the spectrum than than right in the middle. Um, but that really depends on what type of practice uh, you're involved with. And I think that dictates a lot of of who you are and how you look at that and who you want to be as part of that process. I think the I think that type of pro- I don't want to say you know some. Yeah, sure. Some trauma surgeons probably want to be a hero. They want to be there on someone's worst day. Other folks uh, want to be oncologists and want to walk with people along a hard path and be the one who allows them to either prolong their life and or eventually uh, go into full um, kind of complete cure of their cancer or ailment and and on and on. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, and then uh, so not so much life and death, more so function. Um, so that really never interested me to be there. Uh, and then now I'm a radiologist. So, um, uh, however, uh, I, I've done my time in general surgery and things like that, where there's uh, a fair amount of, I guess, <sighs> playing a large role in kind of uh, continued care like some complex patients and um, I would say the best surgeons like trauma surgeons who are pretty much the folks I very near admire the most general surgery trauma surgeons they um, the best ones are the best people um, it's not really it doesn't come to technique or anything I would say those folks, they get used to it. They they become a little numb to it. But at the same time, they never allow it or very often allow, very often allow that what they do to be a constant reminder of how precious and fragile life is. So, um, so even in, even in radiology, I, I would say, we have to see everything that's happening in the hospital with all the patients that comes through us eventually. And, um, 
I, I guess it just makes you, uh, I guess, fully understand. I guess for me, maybe, maybe I go home and and I, I don't know if I want to say soften, but I have to understand that, given what I see on a daily basis, so much is out of our control. Uh, I guess I guess I can see the full spectrum of what is in con- what we are in control of and what disease uh, processes can arise from that and then ultimately so very much that we don't have control of now you could go down a rabbit hole of decisions and karma and a web of, of decisions puts you in certain situations um, kind of a, a truer definition of karma a web of, of relationships and and decisions in your life, yeah, sure, could lead to certain traumatic injuries, gunshot wounds, stabbings, but more in the sense of um, there's just so much that that uh, we cannot avoid, and so many so many unfortunate um, things have happened to so many people that that uh, that were living normal lives, and how it dramatically changed those lives. So, um, I didn't really answer your question well. I would say that's fluid. I would say, I would say if something happens, I think I can pretty quickly turn on clinical regard. Um, but I allow, whether I'm directly dealing with a patient, doing a procedure, or trying to do my best to find uh, things in their imaging and communicate with their their surgeons or their providers uh, to guide their care, I find I uh, I allow myself to be affected and I allow it to... I, I guess I don't soften or harden because I consciously choose to. I allow what I'm seeing to affect me so I can experience life more... Um, compassionately um, and realistically so I guess in that regard it enhances my vigilance but it also scares me and comforts me kind of at the same time knowing that I, I don't have control so and I try to be fair that it, whatever it is could be coming whether it's a traumatic accident or or just, uh, you know, some sort of disease or process. We, I, uh, can talk about time as an abstract construct that's useful for our brains, but that's all talk. Um, I just do it sort of to be weird. But, you know, in reality, there's obviously a very real meaning of time in a biological, chemical sense, right? Our cells experience time. How is your time as a doctor, affected your sense of time um, as you watch seconds, minutes, and hours uh, mean so much to a patient receiving care, dying, healing? I think it challenges you. Um, um, I, think, I think medicine, things you do and the things you see, so much do, but um, it's rather experience through action, meaning trying to help the patient. Um, and what I was talking about in the last question of 
how vulnerable we are to the cruxes or blessings in life and we, we don't have control of those things. It's rather um, how we respond to those things. Um, so as for more spiritual, uh, I think, again, it relates to my some of my prior answers on the last question, which is um, I think I find myself questioning questioning I think I find myself again in the, in the moment more um, I've always tried to be a, in the moment kind of person a person of experiences um, and relationships and so I I allow it to impact me so for whoever you are I would say it can augment some of those things but again uh, some other people might find that they were that the, they've been told that they've drastically changed um, I don't think I have uh, uh, as far as uh, the um, disposition I give towards other people and my, my attitude but um, I think at times um, I, I would just rather allow what I'm seeing me um, and, and I think maybe I guess in that regard maybe more spiritual if you want to call that spiritual but I think if you're just going about the work and not taking a moment to stand back and realize um, how fortunate you are um, to, to one not not have to have to deal with what some of these folks have have going on in their life or uh, just unfortunate like misfortunes as well as um, the opportunity you have to help in their care and just meet them so um, I think it can be what you allow it to be um, but again so, um, that's why I'm not a pediatric that's why I'm not a pediatric surgeon. That's why I'm not a pediatric oncologist. Um, I uh, I feel it too much, but that's who I am. And so I think this question is, all these questions are related. It's who are you and who do you want to be? And uh, and that's okay to, to, to change as well throughout your practice, whether it's in med school or... Again, I, I, uh, my career changed a couple times in, in medicine, and I'm where I need to be. So, you know, whether I'm reading a, a child's um, MRI who's got some sort of tumor uh, that hits my heart, and I think about their parents as I am a parent myself. So often I find myself um, happy that I'm not on the more clinical side. I can still help, but uh, be quite involved, but uh, I hold it too much. So I find myself thinking about those people and kind of uh, that kind of thing. So, All right. Well, thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again at some point. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Dusty Saddle Publishing, for their support. You can find them at dspublishingnetwork.com. 
as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, let them be your home for Western tales. For those of you who love Westerns, these really put you in a place and a time. I'm not necessarily a pure um, Western fan, but uh, even I like these quite a bit. They really captured the um, the moment of the Wild West. I'll put the link in the description, and you can find all kinds of categories of Westerns from mountain men, lawmen, stories of the frontier, bounty hunters, epic tales of ranching, and more.